Hi, this is Dr. Carl Goldcamp. If you're interested in learning about the ketogenic diet like I was to save my own life, then this is probably the podcast for you. Eight years ago, I knew nothing about it. Six years ago, it saved my life. Three years ago, I started researching and talking with some of the authorities in the field and attending medical conferences about this to understand why and how keto so dramatically changed my and my wife's Judy's lives. The purpose of this podcast is to share our journey of discoveries with you in understanding how keto is so effective in improving so many different conditions, from obesity, epilepsy, diabetes, infertility, MS, Alzheimer's, heart disease, to name a few. So take a step away from all the hype you've probably heard and roll up your sleeves with me and join me weekly to explore this living miracle that anyone can access. We'll talk science. We'll talk food. We'll explore its history and evolution to today, which is that the sheer wonder of the ketogenic way of eating has changed untold number of lives, unlike anything before it. And in case I forget to mention it, please join our Facebook group, Keto Naturopath. Hi, this is Dr. Goldcamp, and welcome back to the Keto Naturopath. Today, we're going to take a whole different direction, and I hope you'll find it's fun because we're going to do a series of three podcasts uh, released separately, and it's all going to be around corn, corn, corn. Why corn? That's not very ketogenic, right? That's a starchy, seedy food. Well, because the world has become so complicated and sophisticated, corn is in everything. So unless you really are kind of a ketivore, that, uh, well, I could have said ketivore, I meant to say carnivore actually, but that's what that, it's a clever use of that word. And it really does have just meat sources that most people think about, they, they may or may not, I'm not, I don't even really care if you actually eat corn, that's the, the least of my interests. The problem is that corn has become such a big crop in the United States. We're talking huge. And it has become so cheap in the United States. They're they're now using corn for all sorts of things they never used corn for before. So in the context of a ketogenic diet, and that I dare talk about as a keto naturopath, is that you have a thing called vegetable oil or corn oil. Corn oil was really popular from, oh, certainly in the 60s. I remember as a little kid, and about corn oil was the best thing you could use to cook in. So corn oil. So they were going to get into corn, and you can know a lot about corn. But the reason I'm after this now is that often when we go out to eat, they're going to use what I consider industrial oils. They'll probably either use canola oil or corn oil, maybe soy oil on your food. It's not going to be great olive oil. It's not going to be anything trickier than that. What's the downside of that? And also, these vegetable fats that have been extracted from these crops in which there's not that much fats, but there's so much of the crops, you can get enough of that fat. It isn't everything. It's in all sorts of processed foods. It's encouraging you to cook in it. It's encouraging you to put it on your salads. It's encouraging you to put it on your foods. And so it's in that fat is a type of, get ready for a sophisticated word, omega-6, which is the opposite of omega-3s, omega-6, which is very pro-inflammatory. So the more that you consume of this in whatever way, 
And it probably won't be eating by eating corn directly. That's the least of your issues. It's all the other stuff. It's in the bread. It's in your chocolate. It's in your cereal. It's in your instant foods. It's in it's in everything. So corn, it's huge. You know, the number of states, if you were to look at the United States, it's about almost half the United States grows corn, certainly from Iowa, which is the biggest corn growing state in the country, all the way through to Montana. As much as you think of Montana as being the big sky country, and sure, it's that as well, it's also a lot of corn there too, and all the states, Nebraska, of course, and so on and so forth. So we're going to talk about corn because it is the pretty much the largest source of an omega-6 oil, and how did it get into our diet? And the other part of that is we eat the corn oil because it's in all the foods. However, guess what? Corn is given to cattle. So when I say cattle, I mean dairy cows and cattle out there on the range or not in the range. Well, they wouldn't be. Actually, if they're eating corn, they're not going to be on the range. So corn, and they never ate cattle, cows, never ate corn at all in their history. It's not a thing that they wanted, ate. It was just unnatural for them. So because there is so much corn, one of the first clients, I guess you could say, one of the first industries that was developed outside of growing just food for people, corn for people, was growing it for livestock. So it became the most abundant livestock feed, also called silage. So the grains in which they eat, they never ate grains. So whether it's a cow or a cattle, for the millennia that they existed and evolved from, they ate grass. And they ate grass, ideally, that hadn't seeded yet. And so that's a big difference. Where did all this come from is an amazing story. But the reason I want to get into this is like, you know, why corn is potentially killing you. It's because it's driving up your inflammation. It's because it's in everything you eat. And it's also given to the cows, which is kind of a separate cattle story. We get some of what they have. And somebody could say, well, aren't we going a little far with that? It is indirect, but we're eating something that, as you'll find out, gets sick because it's eating something it shouldn't have eaten. So it's eating the corn that it should have been eating the grass. And so it requires a lot of antibiotics and it requires other medications as well to keep down their sickness, their inflammation. And so it's pretty much mostly corn that they're fed. And you could also say, well, sometimes it's soy as well. And uh, that's pretty much their feed. And, and the reason for this, by the way, it's there's logical reasons behind it. It's not evil. It sort of gets to be a little evil as we get into pesticides and GMOs and so on. But the idea that you had such a surplus of something, you know, why not find other markets for it, which is what they did. We, the United States is the biggest exporter of corn in the world, but it's because of, you know, let's, let's give it to animals. And so they did. And now the cattle don't have to be out on the pasture. They can be in a barn their whole life. And now it gets to be, this is a good thing. What happens, there are some farms that are actually going back to pasturing their dairy cows. And certainly you've heard the idea of free range cattle for beef as well. They just, you know, kept out there and they just ate the grass. They didn't need to be fed. They just roved around and obviously they need space. 
So if you don't have space or you don't want space and you got a barn and a little more outside of that, not much, is like you feed them corn. And so that's the answer to that. So therefore, you can make more of this stuff, more of the milk, more of the cattle is the idea. But is it serving us is the question. My answer to that would be no. No, because it drives inflammation in the cattle. We saturate them with antibiotics, uh, which is a major cause for antibiotic resistance, by the way. And most antibiotics in this country are given to animals, not to humans. I think it's like a 80-20 kind of thing. Humans get, medically, it's used 20% and uh, for humans and 80% for livestock and called veterinarian use. So this is what we're going to track down. So what you should understand now is it's a big omega-6 fat that is very pro-inflammatory. So what does pro-inflammatory mean? It means it's going to help further, in a bad way, cardiovascular disease, inflammatory diseases such as arthritis, name your arthritis, rheumatoid or osteo. It could be a lot of metabolic dysregulation in any particular direction. So that's in essence what it's doing, but they're very specific. So when you take that out of your diet, take it out of their diet or stop eating them that grew up on corn, had corn, eat corn as their diet, you will have less inflammatory issues. So it's a variable that you can address, that you can remove from your lifestyle and improve yourself. This is the point here. But I want to kind of go through this over time. We're looking at, so this is called a vegetable oil, very specific. It's going to be corn oil. And we're going to say, well, where did this come from? It obviously came from the corn. And where are we using this? And what are the kind of things that are, are problematic? So I'm going to, some of this will be through studies, some will be through articles, some of this will be through just really interesting things to know. Well, the first thing that is interesting to note is that there was a study that looked at fatty acids in the blood. Simply people line up, let me look at your blood, let's look at the fatty acids. So what did they find? You know, when the researchers looked at the fatty acids in the bloodstream, they found sophisticated name, marginic acid, which actually came from dairy. It's actually a good fatty acid that came from dairy. Protective is it lowers cardiovascular risk. I'm not that familiar with that particular fatty acid. They also found two types of omega-3s. There are two types of omega-3s, and those are primarily from fish, right? But they are found, when you eat meat, you also get some omega-3s. You don't get as much as in fish, of course, or seafood, but those are very protective. We know that. But what they also found were a number of omega-6 polyunsaturated fatty acids commonly found in corn, soybean, and other vegetable oils and processed foods. And therefore, it's those foods that we eat present the risk, but it's what those foods were made of that really is the thing that's making those foods a health risk. Okay, I want to take you back in time and give you the context of corn you know, this isn't like bad corn. This is about the corn we have formulated for today's market and what we're doing it. So that's the nub of what we're going to, of the problem. The corn by itself, back when it started, is not a problem. So I think it's important to know that story. You've heard me talk about, you know, is it the advent of agriculture, which is about 10, 11,000 years ago when wheat was developed and other grains in the Fertile Crescent, between the Tigris and Euphrates, that's well-established. 
interesting in the Middle East where all the problems are for the most part. But in that fertile crescent is where kind of like the birthplace of civilization, some think, is really where we started to learn how to grow things, organize it, and we increased the caloric content, the calorie availability for a larger population. So our population could grow and the fact that was kind of like the first population explosion. So that's about 10,000 years ago. I've talked about that before, gotten deep into the anthropology and the archaeology and so on to explain how these things are. And before and after the advent of agriculture, of farming per se, you could also say, well, dairy was back there and goats were back there. They certainly were. It was basically wheat and dairy got started 10,000 years ago in the Middle East. You know, the upside of developing to be able to grow crops was you had more calories, more people, so fewer people starved. Pretty straightforward. So cities started to grow. And so Egypt, we, you know, the, it's really interesting if you look at the building of the of the pyramids is that you think, gosh, this must have taken generations of generations and they've now figured it all out because they've now dug up where the laborers worked and what they ate. But really it took about 26 years to build a pyramid. Probably varies by the size of the pyramid, but it wasn't generations over generations. And so these camps or these whole compounds that they had, this labor that they had, they ate primarily... Uh, wheat. They didn't eat corn, by the way. They ate other grains, and it was the grains that allowed them to eat. But what they found was that they were getting more arthritic and had heart disease, whereas before that era, they didn't find skeletons, which you can find, that had arthritis, signs of arthritis or heart disease and so on and so forth. So it's really fascinating. It was a before and after, and as much as the calories were a big deal that allowed the populations to explode have more kids and children and so on and so forth for subsequent generations is that it wasn't the healthiest thing and their health started to decline. They even have it documented that you know the height be actually started, people were no, no longer as tall and a number of things. So anyway, what I'm tying to that is that about 10,000 years ago for a nice round number in the Fertile Crescent, population explosion due to agriculture starting and the abundance of calories not necessarily nutrition, but calories. Okay, now let's turn the globe around, maybe about 180 degrees, and we find that there's another cradle of civilization, if you will, and that was out of central Mexico. And in the area of central Mexico, so what I'm calling sort of the birthplace of corn, of maize, happened long before the Aztecs, and the Aztecs are really pretty much southern Mexico, Guatemala, that area. And maize, corn, was something that was just like with wheat, was developed over many generations and you know the old-fashioned way of pollinating, cross-pollinating, and they developed other strains. So for instance, and this is the area just on the western side of the Yucatan, so it's on the Pacific side. For the most part, they consider this as the, the central area. As a reference, there's in Mexico there's over 130 different types of corn, of maize, that still exist. And as you know, there's different peoples in Mexico, just like there's different peoples in the United States, call them Native Americans or whatnot. But even the Aztec were kind of a mixed Mesoamerican, Middle American, Central American culture that was composed of different ethnicities as well. They're obviously similar enough because they lived not far from each other, but they were not all homogeneous at all, but they were more like a political reference to that. But if you go back 
So now, and, and they actually have a name for that first corn. Uh, I can't find it right now, but I will get it to you. That they started with this first corn, and they, how do I know this guy, Tio Nasty or something? And, you know, they obviously find this from archaeological digs, and they have the genes, and now they can compare the genes of that particular corn to all the subsequent strains. And so they can trace out, you know, who, how things got developed. And in terms of just covering the different sort of variations of corn today, they still use that. So that old-fashioned, primitive, original parent of corn is still used in Mexico today. It's one of their 130 different types that are there. In this country, and and the Native American culture, say the Navajo, the Navajo have at least three different types of corn used for three different ways of eating. So this whole idea of diversifying within maize, the family of maize and corn, is all over the place. But let's just stick back to 10,000 years ago when this got started. As they started developing this grain as being their major grain, what they did is they cooked it very differently. So corn then and corn now was hard to digest. It had two problems with it. And the first problem was a kind of toxin that was on the outside called aflatoxins. It's a pretty common toxin. It's around everything. And the other is that skin called the pericarp. You know, that's the yellow part that you see that you can visualize for a, a kernel of corn. So that's the pericarp. So what they would do is that they would actually take lime and ash, and they would call it lime water. It's a very alkaline sort of solution or bath. And they would soak their corn and all the subsequent strains of corn up through, even today, they still do this in that part. And they would let it soak for a day or so. And so that alkaline, so the alkaline is opposite of acidity, the alkaline bath would then break down the covering, which are the pericarp, but it would also kill and remove all the aflatoxins. So it made it a better product. It also made the starch inside the kernel much more accessible, and much more digestible. So it broke it down into the saccharides and disaccharides. So you now had this kind of like a, a pudding aspect. This is where they were going for their bread, you know, the tamales and so on that we see and uh, stereotypic and the tamales go way back. That's that pad if you go to a, a, when you eat at a Mexican restaurant, that big dish size, doughy, big potato chip, that's a tamale. So in order to extract the nutrition, not only just the calories, to increase the efficiency of that, is that they had to prepare it in this alkaline bath that did all these things to it. So this is a traditional way of preparing corn for the things you're going to use it for whether you make the bread with it, the tamales, or whether you make whatever else with it. It goes on to all the other aspects of the chips or the whatever that they're making. So that was a big deal. That has been lost. Nobody does that. So that doesn't happen in corn. When you go home and let's say you're having corn now, you think you do that? No. That's in part why corn is so undigestible for so many people is because it is not prepared like it was before. It has It's a very difficult aspect to get over the covering, the pericarp. Corn came to Europe, of course, and now it's used all over the place. Christopher Columbus brought potatoes and corn and a number of other things, but that was the hop over to Europe was through Christopher Columbus in the 1500s. That process of alkalizing, that alkaline bath, was called nixtamalize. That's right. And they would let it sit in that for a day. And then they would go on and they would grind down and you know squeeze off and just get the, the gooey, starchy material to make their food for. So that was on for 5,000, 10,000 years. That happened. And as it got to be modern corn, 
that doesn't happen. So this is the first step of how is what we're eating today, what our cows are eating today, how we're processing corn today different than it was 10,000 years ago or 5,000 years ago. And by the way, there are places in that area of Mexico and certainly part to the Yucatan that still work with those more primitive variations of corn, more primitive being they were not far off the original Tio Nasty, original corn. So they still do that process. There's many that are still look like they're Aztec to me that still eat in that native Central American way. Very interesting. And whereas there's others that don't as well. So there's that first change that I thought would be interesting to know about. On we go for more. So I'm going to leave you in the era of the Aztecs, which is about 1500 BC. And we know how their future went when the Spanish Americans came and the conquistadors and so on. I'm going to leave you there with that sort of culinary way of preparing corn. And then the next episode, we're going to talk about how did corn become so cheap and what did we do? What brought all that about? I think it's important to know that. You know, how we got here to now and why is corn such a problem? Hi, this is Dr. Goldcamp. I just wanted to encourage you to send in your questions to drgoldcamp at ketonaturopath.com. Many of you have, and so what I've done with these questions that I've gotten back to most of the people I email, but some of the questions that were so good, and if they were overlapping to other questions, I would combine them and try to put that into the topic of a podcast, either via one of the micro topics that are covered in an interview. As you know, we cover a lot of topics in any given interview or some of my own sort of reporting, if you will, on some of these issues. So please keep the questions coming. Feel free to send in an email and uh, I will get back to you. Stay listening, send in your questions, and I will definitely get back to you.